Okay, a couple of announcements before we get started, just to remind everyone that the uh, that the men's prayer breakfast is on uh, is a week from Saturday, August the 19th at 7.30, followed by our deacons meeting, and also a reminder on the D.C. trip that we're planning for next April. Uh, about half the rooms are spoken for, and it will be, um, the, the rest will kind of fill up. As I said before, I've got some plans that can't be finalized until about November, so I can't say anything about those, but I think everybody will uh, will like that. We'll put more and more information about that up on the Internet as well. I think that's about it for announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so very grateful that we have this time to come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to recognize that fellowship is grounded in what Christ did on the cross and our faith in him, which makes us part of the body of Christ, and that our fellowship with one another is the byproduct of our fellowship with you. Father, we're thankful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that as we study it, we come to learn how we should live, how we should live on the basis of your word, which is wisdom, and that we can live to glorify you. Now, Father, as we study this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand the important principles we need to apply in our own lives, that we may exemplify your love and your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First Samuel chapter 30. While you're turning there, I'll give you a brief report on uh, my trip up to Dallas on, uh, well, actually it was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. On Friday and Saturday, we attended a leadership seminar for Christian leaders involved with APAC for Southwest Region, and they have incredible speakers that give uh, just tremendous information and so we heard uh, four or five different uh, different lectures. There was also some other things in terms of uh, some organizational things that we worked on. And so that was that took us through noon on Saturday, and then we shifted hotels. And Sunday night there was a dinner for a lot of the speakers at this event, which was held at Temple Shalom in Dallas uh, called Israel Today. Now this event started last year, and I was there for the first one, and it's really the vision of one man in Dallas who is very concerned about educating Jews and Christians about what is really going on in Israel and to get past the myths and to bring in good speakers to talk about the realities of of Israel and what it means to support Israel and why both Jews and Christians should support Israel. It's interesting, one of my two workshop topics our breakout session topics was on why Christians support Israel. And across the hall, there was a lady who was giving a session on why Jews should support Israel. 
So uh, it was it was quite interesting. I think one of the things that for me really spoke to the fact that there needs to be a lot more education on this is that Pam was in a workshop that was put on by the Anti-Defamation League, and they were dealing with a lot of different things, but one of the things they were talking about was how anti-Semitic things show up in the media, and by media they're talking mostly about social media, online media, things of that nature. And so one of the illustrations of things that are products that are out there on the market was a picture of a shower curtain that was a sort of faded out image of the sign that read Arbeit macht frei that was over the entry to Auschwitz. Of course, you understand that you're going in to Auschwitz to go to the fake showers that were the gas chambers. So this is something that is just a horrendous product that is that is out there on the market. And there was a, a man sitting next to her that was close to our age and who was Jewish and who did not have a clue what the significance of that was or what that meant. Now think about that. If we don't have Jews that are educated about the Holocaust, then we certainly don't have Christians or non-Christians that are educated about the Holocaust. And that needs to take place. If you don't educate people about what's happening in history, then we will be doomed to repeat it. And I fear that that's the historical trend. But that just shows why it's so important to have things of this nature that provide a framework for educating people because they're certainly not getting a lot of this information in in, uh, public schools or any sort of public education anymore. So that was part of it. My two sessions were on why Christians, why evangelical Christians support Israel. And the uh, other session was on the Balfour Declaration because this is the 100th anniversary. And the significance of the Balfour Declaration for the uh, legal foundation for Israel's right to the land, which is a significant topic. And while nearly everybody in all my sessions knew what the Balfour Declaration was, only four or five knew what the San Remo resolutions were. Now, you may not exactly remember that, but I've taught that many times here and gone through the the, the legal issues. So, again, very important to educate people. This is a position that, although it's much more widely known today than it was... um, than it was 10 years ago when I first heard it and when it first really began to come out. Uh, it is still a position that is uh, that people want to ignore because to obey and to implement difficult law is difficult. And they would rather hide and ignore it than have to admit mistakes and go back and retrench and re- and redo things so they just act like the law is not there. But if we're a democracy and democracies allegedly are law-abiding people and based on the principle that that uh, we are going to live according to the law, then we must understand what the law is and live accordingly. And if we don't like it, then we use legal means to to, to change it. So that was good, and in, and that was a, a a good session. I got a lot of positive response on that session. And then the other session was the session on why evangelical Christians support Israel. 
and that involves definitions. What is a Christian? What is an evangelical Christian? What does support mean? And a lot of evangelical Christians think that support means I'm going to pray for Israel and I'm going to elect politicians that support Israel. But that's like the first 5% of what's possible in terms of supporting Israel. That's not very much action that's important. We don't want to take away from that. But there are things that can be done to be informed, to educate others, to educate your uh, uh, congressional representatives. And one of the people, one of the things at the end of the uh, talk on the Balfour Declaration said, well, what can we do about that? I said, buy these books and send them to your congressman. You know, get somebody to educate your congressman on what these issues is so that that, the powers that be can uh, operate on truth and not on on mythology. So being involved as citizens in the political process to help inform your congressman, there's a lot of people who are elected to Congress who really don't know where Cuba is or where, where Panama is or where the Galapagos Islands are because they majored in science and they were a veterinarian or they were a dentist or they were a plumber or maybe they had um, you know, a, 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 some other kind of business and they don't have a liberal arts background, so they don't know a lot of stuff. They don't have a legal background. And the lawyers aren't trained in the Constitution. They're just trained in the history of congression, or, or constitutional interpretation. And you don't have to read the Constitution to get a law degree in constitutional law. A lot of people don't, don't realize that. So as citizens, I think we have a responsibility to inform and educate those that are elected so that they can make wise decisions. So I think that's all part of this, this process. And, of course, when I go through the process of defining what a Christian is, that gives me the opportunity to talk about replacement theology and how things changed in the early church when they changed their uh, their hermeneutics and went to allegory and how that fed into the rise of Christian anti-Semitism and how that only began to go away once the Reformation came and they began to shift back to a uh, literal interpretation. And by the 1600s, you had the rise of British Restorationism, philo-Semitism in Britain, and then in America, and that, um, and then you get into the that helps them understand that that not all Christians are Roman Catholics and not all Christians are the same flavor, and they really don't understand that. Like a lot of Gentiles don't under are Christians don't understand that most Jews don't know anything about the Torah or the Old Testament at all. They've never read it. They've heard people read it, but they've never read it, so they're pretty ignorant about those things, and so. It gives you the op- gives me the opportunity to talk about what is evangelical mean. It comes from the word evangelizo, and that that means giving the good news. Well, what is the good news? And I basically go through four points that make an e- four beliefs that make an evangelical and evangelical that they believe the Bible is the highest authority, and so what the Bible says is what they do. That's why. Fundamentally, why Christians support Israel is because the Bible says so. And the Bible says that Jesus is the uh, promised and prophesied Messiah. And third, that Jesus told us to tell everybody that he's the Messiah. And that fourth, that salvation is by 
uh, faith without works. And that's what evangelicals believe. So that gives me the opportunity to find that very clearly. And then there was one guy there that I was hoping would get saved, but Herman Maddox is still resistant to the gospel. For those of you who know Herman, I'm just joking a little bit. Herman was so impressed with it, though, that he, on the way home, he and his wife said next year he's going to get a substitute to fill the pulpit so he can go and spend all day there because it was such an uh, impressive, educational, informative event. So anyway, that's what I go through, and it was well-received, and we look forward to fu- future events. Okay, we're in First Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 30, which I gave background to in Lesson 99. And what we have seen in the background to this is that David has been, since chapter 16, pursued by Saul, who is seeking to destroy him. In chapter 15, God took the kingdom away from Saul and said that he would give it to someone else, that he would, his son would not receive it. And for a period of time, probably between five to ten years, I tend to think it was closer to ten than five. We don't know exactly. Uh, Saul has been attempting to kill David, and we went through 16 different attempts by Saul to kill David. And then in these last few chapters, starting in chapter 26, 27, 28 through 30, there's a comparison and contrast between Saul as the anti-Messiah, the non-Messianic king, the rebellious king, versus David, who is the obedient king. And it culminated with what we saw last time with Saul, that he seeks uh, seeks revelation through the use of demonic or occult procedures going to a medium, going to a necromancer, someone who claims to be able to get in touch with the dead. In this case, God turned the tables on her and brought up Samuel. Now, I was reminded after class last time of something that I was aware of, but it just hadn't thought about it in a long time, that Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem called The Road to Endor. And the reason he wrote this, he wrote it at towards the end of World War I. And the reason that he wrote this was because there was such a huge loss of life by the British in, in World War I. Battles like the Somme and other battles were just... Uh, hundreds of thousands were killed or wounded, and and especially the the killed. There was such grief in England by so many mothers and sisters and girlfriends that there was a huge rise of spiritism of those who were trying to find someone who could contact their dead loved ones. And I think he understood the dangers of that and also because there was some things related to his sister who had gotten involved in this, and she was mentally ill or just had driven her psychotic, so that he was warning against this. And so that's how how he writes this. He says, The road to indoor is easy to tread for mother or yearning wife. There it is sure we shall meet our dead as they were even in life. Earth has not dreamed of the blessing in store for desolate hearts on the road to endure. Whispers shall comfort us out of the dark, 
hands a God that we knew. Visions and voices, look and hark, shall prove that the tale is true and that those who have passed to the further shore may be hailed at a price on the road to Endor. But they are so deep in their new eclipse, nothing they say can reach unless it be uttered by alien lips and framed in a stranger's speech. The son must send word to the mother that bore through a hireling's mouth, tis the rule of Endor. And not for nothing these gifts are shown, but such as delight our dead. They must twitch and stiffen and slaver and groan ere the eyes are set in the head and the voice from the belly begins. Therefore, we pay them a wage where they ply, where they ply at indoor. Even so, we have need of faith and patience to follow the clue. Often, at first, what the dear one saith is babble or jest or untrue. Lying spirits perplex us sore till our loves and their lives are well known at Endor. Oh, the road to Endor is the oldest road and the craziest road of all. Straight it runs to the witch's abode, as it did in the days of Saul. And nothing has changed of the sorrow in store for such as go down on the road to Endor. That was Kipling. And that is what we learn from Saul, is that he learns that he is about to die on the next day. Now, while that is taking place, David has been uh, kicked out of the Philistine army. He was first made to go with them, with uh, Achish, the king of Gath. And then he is basically uh, kicked out because all of the other rulers of the Philistines are suspect of David. And so they kick him out. And then he goes back to Ziklag, only to discover that while this huge army of Philistines has marched north, it has left their their southern flank vulnerable, and the Amalekites have come in and attacked both Philistine and Israelite cities, as well as the city where all of of David's men's wives and families are, and they have been all taken captive and that all of their goods, their sheep, their cattle, their li- all their livestock, everything has been taken, and that they are in tremendous grief when they, when they discover this. So what we see in this chapter is, again, this messianic type of David. He brings victory over God's enemies, and he exemplifies grace in action. So we think about that as we think about how David operates here. Verse 1, we read, It happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south, and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone. Now they knew that because they didn't find any bodies but carried them away and went their way. So here's our map of uh, the southern part of Israel, this area here that's marked Philistia. Uh, Down here is Gaza, but the border today is is this little uh, 
intermittent stream that flows down. Uh, this would um, uh, mark that northern border of what is now the Gaza Strip along here. And so here's Ziklag, the blue line here, which is going north to indicate the on this map the movement of the Philistine army north. David and his men have come back south to Ziklag to find that it has been attacked. Now, at that point, we went over a little review of Israel and Amalek. I just want to hit a few high points that this is a contrast between David and Saul in relation to the Amalekites. Saul had been told to completely annihilate the Amalekites. He was to kill man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, just absolutely obliterate them. Now, that sounds harsh to us. The language here is that they are basically devoted to God. They're not to plunder them for their own benefit. They are to annihilate them because they are God's instrument in judging and destroying uh, the Amalekites for all of their sins against God and God's people. The Amalekites lived in the south in the Negev, and this is a map that shows their location down here to the far south in the Negev, and they were they weren't quite like Bedouins, but they 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 didn't have a stable uh, society. They didn't have cities and towns. They basically roved, and they were they were like land pirates. They 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 brought all they attacked all the various people around and plundered them. They operated freely down in the Sinai, which is where Israel first ran into them as they were exiting Egypt. Somewhere, I don't believe they went down to the tip of Sinai. That's the traditional location. I think that um, the, the, probably the, the location of biblical Sinai is somewhere up in the middle of this Sinai Peninsula. So somewhere between Egypt and uh, Mount Sinai, there was this major battle that took place uh, as the Amalekites attacked the Israelites and were told the story about uh, Moses holding his arms up, and as long as his arms were up, the Israelites were given victory, and when he relaxed his arms, they, they, they were losing, and so uh, Aaron and Hur held his arms up. And the command that was given uh, to them by God was in, verse, uh, in Exodus 17:14. God said that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now, we saw that Amalek was a descendant of Esau. So he's a, Amalek is a distant cousin, but, of course, not in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. This promise of God that he will utterly destroy Amalek was repeated by Moses in Deuteronomy 25, 19. Uh, and, and that statement that they would be blotted out, the remembrance of Amalek will be blotted out from under heaven, you shall not forget. So now it's David's turn to attack the Amalekites. Now, he won't finish them off here, but he will. they're, they're going, to, going to be 400 that escape. What's interesting is David's got 400 men. So if they have this huge, enormous battle and he kills a huge number and 400 escaped, that tells us that there were many, many times 400 in the uh, Amalekite force. So they realize that they have been taken. They're not sure who it is at this point, And so they come, and when they discover it, 
they grieve and this gives puts David in an awkward position because when people start operating on emotion they usually put their brain in neutral and they start blaming the wrong person for the wrong thing and this is what happens his men begin to blame David for what has happened to their wives and their children and all of their possessions and so David uh, truly realizes that he is in jeopardy so initially they grieve that's verse 4 then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep so they're just worn out by their grief they are emotionally empty and then we read in in uh, verse 5 David, that David personally took a huge hit in this, that his two wives, Ahinoam, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Naval the Carmelite, were also taken captive. So David lost his two wives and everything he had as well. Now we're told David was greatly distressed. We get a picture of the emotional state that David is in. But this is... Um, uh, you got to be careful reading this. He is distressed not because of the loss of his two wives or his possessions, because he's ready to go after whoever took them. The text says he he was distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. So now his people are turning against him, and this is what has brought distress. And the text says, because the soul of all the people was grieved. And actually, a better translation is they became bitter. So first, they are shocked. They're sorrowful. They're not applying any doctrine whatsoever. And then they start looking for someone to blame and they become angry and bitter against David. There's no other enemy there, so we're going to blame the nearest source. So they are uh, bitter against David. And when people get involved in mental attitude sins and they quit thinking that it is totally irrational, let me give you a modern example, the Palestinian Arabs. There is no way to discuss anything rational or legal with them. I tried on one occasion in Israel with a couple of uh, so-called Christian Palestinians, and they don't care what the law says. They don't care what the history is. They're just emotionally committed to their propagandized cause, and that is all. You can't sit down and talk and go through the history and explain the legal issues or anything. There's nothing you can do. It's just pure emotion and hatred for the Jews that drives everything. And as long as that happens, the Palestinian Arabs are going to be a poor, impoverished people who are enslaved by their own hatred and their own bitterness. And this happens to Christians, too. They have things that happen in life that are disappointments, that are heartaches, and they blame God, and they become embittered toward God, or they become embittered towards the church, or something happens with regard to their job or their career, and they become embittered towards towards other people, and then they just live in, and they're enmeshed in a self-absorbed pity party 
for the remainder of their life and their life just becomes empty and meaningless because the only thing that drives them is that emotion. And this is what's happening with David's people. Now, the interesting thing that we'll see here is that this paints a not-so-positive picture of the people who have uh, allied themselves with David and who have joined David in the field. Now, remember, David's mighty men and those who have allied themselves with, with David as a type of the Messiah, they are also a type of the church because they're the followers of the anointed king. And they are on the outs from the establishment powers, just as Christians have been, and they're being persecuted. But just like Christians in the church age, they become uh, embittered, they're selfish, they, they, some of them are honorable and virtuous men, others are absolutely not. And what we're going to see later in the chapter is that they are described as evil uh, sons of Belial, evil and this this is david's supporters it's not all of them but it's some of them because we always live with with human beings and when human beings operate on their sin nature there are always going to be problems i've always said that when two people get together if they are believers they need before they get married before a man and a woman get married they need to make sure they can live with each other's sin nature because if your spouse is positive to the word and walking with the Lord now, and you are, then everything can be wonderful. But if your spouse decides to go on a sin binge and they turn against God for 3, 5, 10, 15 years, it's going to be miserable. So you better make sure you can live with their sin nature. And then what, and, and I've also said that it takes two people to make a marriage work, but only one people to, to destroy, one person to destroy it when they're operating on their sin nature. They can, they can completely, completely wipe out anything. So it's important to understand that, that when two people are walking by the Spirit, things can work out. But when one person isn't, then the person that is is going through a test and they have to learn to trust God in the midst of that test. And that's part of what David is going through with this test of having to live under the authority of Saul, who is a, a, who is a believer, as I've shown in the past. But he is used by Samuel sort of as a type of the Antichrist, the one who opposes the, the anointed one, who is, who is David. And so we see this even with his own people. They are, they turn and they operate on their sin nature. And now David has probably two or three hundred really angry uh, sin natures that he has to deal with. And so when we're having to deal with people's sin nature, we can't always change their sin nature. You can't reach in there and tweak their volition and say, you need to get positive. We can't grab them by the collar and shake them and say, you need to confess your sin and get straight. You can might be able to do that with your kids, but you can't do it with your spouse. But we have to uh, say something, but even then they, they, they won't. So what does David do? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He can't change the people, but he can change himself. 
and he can seek strength and sustenance in the Lord. And that's true throughout all life, whether it's people or whether it's situations or circumstances or systems. Whenever there's opposition, many times, most of the time, we can't do anything to change those circumstances. We're powerless. All we can do is strengthen ourselves in the Lord and learn to trust in him. And this is the word that's used here is chazak, which means to be strong or to be mighty. When David strengthens himself in Yahweh, his God. So that's the focal point. Now, what's interesting, and I pointed this, this verse out and the psalm out the last time, that when we finish 1 Samuel and we begin to get into 2 Samuel, we're going to have to take the time to go through Psalm 18, which is a wonderful psalm. And it's just a glorious psalm. It has some tremendous doctrine in it, some things to teach us about how to handle adversity and trust in God and to walk with him. And it begins with David making this positive statement, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. See, he writes this in response to God giving him the throne and taking Saul out of the picture. He says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. That's that same word, chazak, that he uses uh, there in, uh, that's used there in 1 Samuel 30, talking about uh, David strengthening himself in the Lord. So he says, the Lord is my strength. And then it goes on to say, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. How many times have I gone over? This is a great couple of verses to memorize because God is our shield. He is our soul. He fortifies our soul. He strengthens our soul. This is where I got the whole idea of the soul fortress is that this is the picture here. He is our fortress And he is the one who protects us from whatever the circumstances may be. And then later in that psalm, David will praise God. He says, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. So that's David's David's praise. In Psalm 31, he also uses the same verb. He says, be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. And the word heart isn't talking about your emotions. It's talking about your mentality. It's talking about the core of your soul. It's talking about the inner life, the inner man. God will give you strength to do that which you need to do in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so what David does immediately is we see the end of verse 6. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Well, how did he do that? Well, He sought divine revelation. How do we do that? We should be going to the word of God. Psalm uh, 119, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. We need to be, that's why I keep saying we need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be studying our Bibles. We need to be memorizing scripture. That is what fortifies our soul. When we come to Bible class, What happens is we learn to answer the questions that are raised by reading the scripture. And so I was real pleased. I met a 
guy I had gone to Israel with several years ago, a lawyer from uh, Oklahoma, and I asked him, I said, well, are, are, are you regularly reading Scripture? He said, my wife and I have been reading through the Bible every year for the last three or four years. Every year we read a different translation. Sometimes we read it like a chronological order. Sometimes we read it in the order it's in the canon. But they mix it up so that it's not always the same. And that's so important. He said, and now, because he comes out of a certain denominational background, he says, now I'm beginning to question my denomination's beliefs in some areas because it doesn't seem to stack up with what I'm reading in the Bible. See, that's what's important. When when people in the pew aren't reading the Bible, then people in the pulpit can get away with all kinds of nonsense. So it's important to read the Scripture. Now, verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar, Ahimelech's son, Abiathar is the high priest, Please bring the ephod here to me. The ephod was this garment that the priest wore. And on the garment, uh, we don't know exactly how they worked, but there's these two stones that was called the Urim and the Thummim. And somehow they gave answers to what God used those to communicate revelation, whether they vibrated, whether they glowed. Uh, I, we don't know how it worked, but you could ask Questions and you would gain divine guidance from the Urim and Thummim. So he brings the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? He doesn't know that they're Amalekites at this point. Shall I overtake them? And God answered him and said, Pursue, for you shall overtake them and without fail recover all. Now that's a divine promise. Now who was it given to? David. Was it given to you and me? No. See, it's always important when you look at promises in Scripture to ask, who was it given to? Was it given for a specific limited set of circumstances? So God doesn't tell you to pursue the enemy. You can't apply that to the North Koreans. You can't apply that to the Arabs. You can't apply that to the Muslims or ISIS or anybody else because it's not given to anybody but David. And pursue them, for you shall overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now, that could be as a basis for just a rip-snort topical sermon for motivation. But it's not grounded in the text. And unfortunately, that's what happens in about 80% of the pulpits in this in this country is they just go take a pass, take a verse, take it out of context, and then they teach a nice motivational message out of that. And I remember the first time I went away and was really in a church where I did had not grown up, and I went to the First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches, Texas, and heard a sermon like that. And it was a sermon when Elisha floats the uh, axe head. And I kept reading through the passage and listening to what was said, and I didn't know a whole lot at that point, but I knew that whatever was coming out of that preacher's mouth had absolutely nothing to do with what I was reading in the context. Now, it all sounded good, but it didn't have anything to do with Elijah floating that axe head and why that was significant in the context of First Kings. And I couldn't have articulated it the way I just did, but I just knew this wasn't right. But that's what happens in a lot of churches. And people think that's Bible study. 
And the problem with that is that people who've grown up on that kind of garbage for Bible study, then they come into a Bible teaching church that's going verse by verse, and it just blows them away, and they go, "Mm, that's not Bible study. That's how the devil works. He gets you to redefine everything so it's wrong, and then you start looking for that understanding of things, and you can't see the truth for the errors anymore. So... David is told and given a promise from God to pursue them, and he will overtake them. So on the way, he's got his 600 men with him, but some of them are tired. They've been coming back from up near uh, Megiddo. They're worn out. They're tired. Uh, He had a group of men. Their ages differed, so some of them were older. Some of them may have been wounded. Some of them may have injuries. They're worn out. So there are 200 who say, we just can't make it any further. So he, he leaves them behind, and he goes on with 400 men, and 200 stayed behind because they were so weary they couldn't cross the brook Bezor. Now, we'll come back to them later on. But it's a um, reminder that as David is going after his people, he is going to rescue those who are taken captive. And that's what Jesus did. Another thing that we see here is this pictures the actions of the Messiah. Jesus is going to take captive those who are already captive. And that refers to men who are captive by Satan, by the world system, and who need to be redeemed and rescued from the penalty of sin. And so Jesus is, this is a quote from Psalm 68, 18, that when he ascended on high, he took captivity captive, and that's a reference to Old Testament saints that are taken from uh, Abraham's bosom, from paradise, and taken to heaven. So as they're going along, after they cross the brook, they find this Egyptian in the field, and they brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. Now, this is being very gracious. They, they, they don't torture him. They're not asking him any questions to begin with. They don't say, well, you know, tell us. They're not going to interrogate him. They're not going to waterboard him. Uh, they're not going to do, make any conditions on this. They just freely, graciously give him sustenance. And that exemplifies grace and kindness to one's enemy. Now, they don't know anything about him yet. As far as they're concerned, he's part of the enemy. And he is so uh, dehydrated and so hungry that he's not communicating anything. Nothing's communicated So, other than he's hungry. So they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water, and he is immediately uh, revives. And they gave him a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins where there's a lot of sugar content in, in both the uh, fig cakes and the raisins high sugar content, which is immediately going to lift him up and give him energy. And it says his strength came back to him, which is a good thing. Literally, it means his strength returned or his soul returned. And that's the idea is that he is revived. And then we're told something interesting. It says, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. How many of y'all have heard that phrase three days and three nights somewhere else before? I ran across this, and in all the study that I've been doing on Matthew and the chronology on that last week of Christ, 
I've read a lot of different things on chronology and numbers and counting days and all these other arguments for Wednesday crucifixion, Thursday crucifixion, Friday crucifixion, and I never ran across anybody referencing this verse as significant for understanding the usage of terms. Okay? Now, we're going to come back and do this again, but I've got to give you a little preview because it takes a little while for people to work through new information. What we, we have to understand two things. Number one is how you tell time as a Western thinker, a descendant of the Enlightenment and Greco-Roman thought, is not how Semitic sons of Abraham, descendants in the Middle East, think and use a lot of language. It just isn't the same. We don't think like that. You have a statement Jesus made when he said but, uh, about the sign of Jonah that I'll be in the, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, so I'll be in the earth. And w certain Western theologians have looked at that, and they say that's got to be taken literally. It's three days and three nights. Well, there's about three or four other phrases that are used in the New Testament to describe the period of time that Jesus in the is in the grave. After three days is one. On the third day is another. Until the third day is another. Now, they all have to mean the same thing. And what we discover in language is that certain ways in which we use prepositional phrases are idiomatic. That means they don't, th their meaning is not determined by their denotative dictionary literal meaning. Let me give you an example. When I am talking or writing with some of my uh, friends in Ukraine who are not the greatest of English speakers, but some of them are fairly good. If I say, I will call you in 15 minutes or in three hours, they will say, okay, call me after 15 minutes and after three hours. Now, that's how their language works. Their thinking in three hours is semantically equivalent to after three hours because of how the idioms in Russian work. Well, when you have phrases related to Jesus being in the tomb, that he's uh, going to be raised after the third day, and in the same paragraph, the same speakers say on the third day, you have to understand that after three days and on the third day either means the same thing in their idiom or these people are so stupid they make a rock look like Einstein. Okay? We have to be careful to make sure meaning in the Scripture is determined by usage, okay, and not by something we read into it from a preconceived Western mindset. And that happens in a lot of areas in Scripture. And the more that linguists are studied, I think there's a lot of error, so we always have to be careful. But as we study linguistics, we realize that a lot of our language is idiomatic. Now, there are some writers who are very idiomatic. There's one writer 
who begins an excellent book on the plan of God, a pastor, who starts off using a baseball idiom that when we are born, we have three strikes against us. Strike number one is inherited sin from Adam. Uh, strike number two is, I mean, is an inherited sin nature. Strike number three is personal sin. But if you're some native in the jungles in Irian Jaya, you've never heard of baseball, and that idiom doesn't make a lick of sense. And if you read a lot of things, terms like rebound come out of a basketball analogy. And if you don't understand basketball, rebound the term rebound doesn't communicate. It's all idiomatic. Our language is heavily, all language is heavily idiomatic. And so we have to understand how these terms and phrases are used. And a lot of times in the past, phrases haven't been easy to search because you have a concordance. You look up one word at a time. But in the last 20 or 30 years with the advent of computers, you can not only look for phrases, you can look for long phrases, and you can look for gr phrases with certain grammatical um, uh, uh, certain grammatical uh, terms in there or, or shapes. So it, it's really interesting. So anyway, what we have here is this phrase that he says that since this event happened with him, he hasn't drunk water for three days and three nights. And um, so uh, they gave him told that he ate and let him drink water. And what we see, verse 12, is he says it was for three days and three nights. And then in verse 13, then David said to him, to whom do you belong? Where are you from? So he's revived, and now he can start asking him questions. And he says, uh, who, whom do you belong? Where are you from? And he says, I'm a young man from Egypt. So that's the first time they know this, this guy is Egyptian a servant of a, or a slave of an Amalekite. So that now they know he's a slave, that if he participated in the raid, it was against his volition. He did it because he was forced to, because he was a slave. And he says, I, my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. Now, the, literally, it, there's no ago in the, in the Hebrew. That's a, a translator's interpretive addition. Literally, he says, I was sick three days. So the, his Amalekite boss dumps him, his owner dumps him three, three days ago. But he, said that's, but he also describes that as after three days. So if he says, I was sick three days ago, that doesn't include the third night. So three days... If he, he's been sick three days, that's three days and it's two nights. It's not three days and three nights. And you can't read that in there. Now, somebody's going to say, well, you know, we're going to fudge the language because we want it to fit our little pet theory. So let's look at another Hebrew usage. In Esther 4.16, this is a situation where uh, Haman, who is the uh, counselor to, to Ahasuerus, is fomenting a, a, a conspiracy against the Jews so that all the Jews in Persia can be killed. And Esther, who is the queen, who is Jewish, gets wind of this, and now she's going to put her life on the line to go in and walk into the presence of the king in his court and if the king recognizes her, then she will be able to present her petition and live. 
But if the king doesn't uh, give her the nod, then she's going to die. So this is serious, so we need to pray about this. So she says, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. Now, to your little Western mind and my little Western mind, that's three days and three nights. That's, that's 72 hours. But look at what happens in 5.1 at the bottom. The bottom verse, she says, Now it happened on the third day. So the third day occurs before the third night. And the Hebrew preposition there is ba, which could be translated in the third day. But the idiom for English is better to say on the third day. So on the third day, that's before they fasted the third night. Did you get that? It's before they fasted the third night. It's n- the 72 hours hasn't gone by yet. Okay, they're between 48 and 72 hours. 50, 55 hours have gone by. So she says it happened on the third day. Esther put on a royal robe and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, blah, blah, blah. She goes into the king. She doesn't wait till the 72 hours are gone. So the language here shows that three days and three nights is equivalent to something on the third day. Now, what we'll see later on is that there are some interesting things that happen with the way the Jews counted time. And you've heard, if you went through Kings with me, you knew this, that if you became a king on December 31st, 2017, then 2017 was your first year you ruled, even though you only ruled for part of a day. The rabbi said, if it's part of a day, it's a whole, I mean, it's a whole day. If it's part of a year, it's the whole year. That's how they counted time. That's not how you and I count time. If we're going to say it's a day, we usually imply it's a 24-hour period, not just an hour of the day. But that's how they would count time. So, this is the other thing that I think kind of wraps things up in terms of the timeline for Jesus, is that when Jesus goes on the road to Emmaus and he cloaks his identity so these two disciples don't know who he is, um, he's sort of playing dumb to get them to tell him why they're so upset. He says to them, what things? He says, where were you? You don't know about all the things that have been happening in Jerusalem? He goes, no, what things? Tell me about it. And so they say the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today, and this is the afternoon, Sunday afternoon of the resurrection day, he said, they say today is the third day. Now, if Sunday's the third day, Saturday's the second day, and Friday is bingo, okay, that's day one. Now, some people try to say, well, that's day one, so zero day is, that's when it happened, that's Thursday. But whatever happens, you can't get Wednesday out of this, no matter how you try to twist the scripture. So it makes sense that Friday's the day. Now, we'll go through all that again when I get to it, but I think this is just was a really interesting thing to see here, that this guy says... For three days and three nights, I haven't had anything, and then when they rescued him, it's the third day. So they haven't hit the third night yet. So that helps us understand that. Okay, so now he describes what happened. We made an invasion 
of the southern area of the Caritites in the territory which belongs to Judah, and the southern area of Caleb, so that'd be also near Hebron, because uh, Hebron was given to Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said, can you take me down? Will you take me to him? And he says, swear to me that you won't kill me and deliver me back to the hands of my master. In other words, give me my freedom. I'll take you down to this to this troop. And so they enter into a covenant with this guy. We'll protect you. And so when they brought him down, they came down, and the Amalekites are having a celebration. It was one heck of a fandango. And they are getting drunk, and they're watching it. And so as they look at this, because of the great, they, they, at all of this drinking, they thought, you know, when's a good time going to be to attack? So it's daytime at this point. It says, and then in the next verse says, then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Now, the difficult thing is, is that this term twilight can mean twilight in the morning or twilight in day. And, and this steely on the left is a picture of the what's on the last part. Is not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels. And this is a uh, 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 steely from, from uh, Nineveh of Arab soldiers fleeing on camelback. So that's what the Amalekites are doing. They're going to get out of Dodge. Now, the word for twilight is debated because it could be the twilight in the evening or twilight in the morning. And it seems from the language here that David attacked them. If it's in the evening, it's the twilight, and he's fighting for 24 hours. The problem with that that is raised is if he's fighting all through the night, how can they tell who they're wives and kids are, where their families are. If they fight from from the morning, most surprise attacks in military history occur about dawn. Why? That's when people are sleeping, they've been sleeping all night. If they've been partying like a bunch of frat boys all night, then at 5.30 in the morning when the sun's starting to come up, they're still drunk and hung over. That's a great time to attack. And that makes more sense in terms of trying to understand this, this idiom here and that they fought until the, the, from dawn the next day until evening. So that would be a 12-hour battle instead of a 24-hour uh, battle. So the result is that David recovers all that the Amalekites had carried away, rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking. Everybody got back everything that had been taken from them. Isn't that remarkable? That's the grace of God. Do they all deserve it? No, they don't. But God has protected their families because he, of what he is showing about David, that God's blessing is with David. David is the anointed king, and God is going to protect and provide for David. So... All of David's possessions are restored, everything. Now he goes back, and along the way, when he gets back to to the brook Bazor, he's there, and the 200 men are there. Now this is where you see 
the sin natures of the 400. They're saying, well, we fought in the battle. We put our lives on the line. But these guys, these are a bunch of 4F guys who sat back here and didn't go into the battle. Now, if you don't understand the old the old uh, uh, draft system, you don't know what 4F is. These are the people who weren't eligible for the draft because of, of some uh, physical malady. And so they go back, and these guys didn't fight. David says, everybody shares in the plunder, not just those who fought in the battle. Everybody in the army gets an equal share. That is grace in action. He's not going to give them to, he's not being a socialist. He's recognizing that even though those guys didn't go, they had a legitimate reason, but they're part of the military, part of the community that lost everything. So they're going to get back uh, that which is theirs and any extra spoil or plunder. So this is what David says, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered us into our hand, the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this manner? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part or his share be who stays by the supplies and guards our rear. They weren't just lollygagging around. They're watching our, our, our backside. They're watching our flank. They're watching our six. So it was from that day forward he made this a statue and an ordinance. So he establishes that as grace. Now as we wrap up the chapter, it's pretty simple. Verse 26. Now when David came back to Ziklag, he divides a certain amount of the spoil up and he sends it. He sends it back to Bethel and to Ramoth of the south, and to Aror, and to Sifmoth, and Eshtimoah, to Rachal, the cities of the Jeremiahites, and the Kenites, and in Horma. In other words, all these towns and villages and communities in the south that had been attacked by the Amalekites. And what they're all in Judah. Now, what's going to happen in chapter 31 is that Saul's going to die. What's going to happen in 2 Samuel 1 is that Judah is going to make David king in Hebron. He is showing graciousness. He's, some people might say, well, he's sort of bribing everybody to support him. He's giving, giving presents out uh, in order to gain their support, and that may be part of it. But David recognizes that they have also been victims of the, uh, of the depredations of the Amalekites, and so they need to get have their possessions restored as well, and they, need, they are blessed. So the Messiah of God brings blessing to all as he destroys the enemies of Israel. And that is where we see grace in action. He's not selfish. He's not hoarding it. He's not keeping it for just his men. He is sharing with one and all. And that is what a great model for grace giving, which we see in the New Testament. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see this great example of grace in the Old Testament of David uh, exercising responsibility to protect his people of your grace in giving him such a glorious victory and protecting his men and of his grace 
toward those who did not participate in the battle and giving them a their fair share of of the spoils as well as sharing with all of those who had been victims of the invading Amalekites. Father, that is a pattern for us, that we are to share of that which you have given to us with those who not, not because we're mandated by government, not because we're mandated by others, but because we understand grace and we want to model your grace uh, to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.